The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. This is the way. One of the things that struck me as I was making my way through this passage of Scripture tonight is that Jesus shows us the way. The, the way to interact one, one with another and, and, and even those who are on the outside of the church. And, and one of the things that came to mind was something that happened in about 1978. It would have been the year that Wanda, my wife, and I became Christians. More, and just as important as we became a part of a small church in Fallbrook, California. I, I didn't know much about church. I didn't grow up church. As a matter of fact, if I were to be honest with you this morning, the greatest concern the first time that we visited Calvary Chapel of Fallbrook was that somebody would ask me a hard question from the Bible. For you see, I knew absolutely nothing about the Bible. And yet as we went there over a period of time, we were welcomed. We were drawn into their, into their community. I think this is especially important for me because when I said yes to Jesus, it meant not that I rejected those who I'd been raised with, but it's just that our interests changed and, and that we, when we didn't have as many things in common anymore, the church became our family. As many of you know, I worked at the power plant for Bechtel Power Corporation. I was a union uh, labor, and the shift that I worked was from 5 in the evening till 12.30. And I would come home and, and shower up, grab something to eat. And at this time, we were new believers, and we were expecting our oldest daughter, Linda. She was born in 1979. And during the day, prior to going to work, I was preparing a room for this baby, our new baby that would be coming. And that could mean everything from painting to assembling furniture. And, and I remember this one night that I got in, and I'm still a little bit awake, not ready for bed, and so I went into the room just to see what I needed to do the next day. And I could barely get the door open because, because the floor was covered with, 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 with all kinds of things associated with having a new baby. And I was still relatively new to this Christian thing and still deeply connected to my Hispanic roots. And as I saw all these things on the floor... The first thing that clicked in my mind is that my wife had gone out and had a shopping spree. And so at about 1 o'clock, or I'm sorry, about 2, 2 o'clock in the morning, I went into the bedroom to inform her that we were going to have to return these things because we couldn't afford them. So as I woke Wanda from her sleep, I said, you know what? Now, had a little bit of, had a little bit of, little bark. No bite, but still a little bit of bark left in the old guy. And I said, you know what? That stuff has to go back. We can't afford it. We can't afford it. Our budget won't allow for it. It's got to go back. And as has happened maybe a million times in my life, I was once again humbled when she informed me, Dan, the women of the church, they threw a reception, a baby shower for us, and all those things in that room were given to us. I don't remember if I apologized, but I went out in the living room and I wept. The reason I wept is because I, I was confronted with the reality of God's love given to me by people who didn't really know me. 
It, it, it was something that gripped me. It was, when I talk about this being the way, and as we conclude here tonight, I hope there's clarity in your mind as to what I'm talking about. The way that you and I are, are, are called to live our lives is to express God's kindness, not your kindness, not my kindness, not your goodness or my goodness, not your love or my love, but God's love to those around us. And as a 22-year-old young man, still very much rough around the edges, it was God's love that slayed me in that moment and at that time. As we look at our Bible study tonight, I want to take you back to the book of Exodus. That's where we'll begin. Yes, we'll eventually get to John chapter 4. But I want to remind you that tonight we're going to observe communion at the conclusion of our Bible study. And after we, after we observe communion together as a, corporately as a family, then we're going to pray for those who are ill or who know somebody who's ill. But again, the book is called Exodus. And it records the liberation of a nation from slavery. Afterwards, Moses met with God on a mountain we call Sinai. In the minds of some, elevation served as a buffer between the nation that occupied the desert floor below and the God's presence above. Sinai served as a threshold, as a stopover on Israel's way to a land of promise. It's where a recently liberated people met with the God who had set them free. They were getting to know them. Oh, he knew them, but they were getting to know them. They saw the 10 plagues that God would use to come against Pharaoh and his people and his might, but now they would come to know him. But while Moses was on the mountain, things didn't go so well back at base camp. You're familiar with the story. For you see, impatience caused the people to pressure Aaron to make them an idol. It doesn't make sense to us, an idol. After God has brought them through the the sea and has delivered them from, from their bondage, they desire to have an idol. You understand that this broke rule number one of God's top ten commandments. So as the story goes, at least from Aaron, right? Aaron threw some jewelry into a fire and out came a gold calf. And as Moses approached, he first heard, then he saw the people worshiping the image. I'm not going to elaborate, but we would say that the scene that he saw was at very least rated R, not recommended for children. And in his anger, he slammed the very first edition of the law to the ground, shattering tablets of stone. And many people in the room here tonight would agree with me as this is why you never leave your sibling in charge when you're gone. It's important for you to know that those who were guilty of idolatry, they died that day. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But it was Moses' intercession that spared Israel from severe judgment. And then as the story goes, Moses gathers himself together and once again ascends to the summit. And surprisingly, 
hear me again, surprisingly, God meets with him again. I think that if you were to consider Israel's sin, the interaction between Moses, the leader, the representative of Israel and God is telling. Get this. Instead of God moving away, instead of God moving on, he draws near. Listen to this from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. And the Lord passed before him, that is, the Lord drew really close to him, and proclaimed or spoke out, the Lord Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundance in goodness and truth. In this moment, Moses saw a representation of God's, of God's presence as revealed in his glory. That's what this man saw. But in God's words, you and I see God's character or his nature. What we would see is, in this passage of Scripture, you and I, through these words, have an opportunity to see what God is like. And it's important. Hear it again. God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. In goodness and truth will be the focus of our time together. Consider this. Lord's goodness is revealed in our weakness. His grace intervenes on our behalf in times of failure. Rick Warren said, God's love is like an ocean. You can see its beginning, but not its end. It's important for us to note tonight that the Hebrew word for goodness, again, back to Exodus 34, is hesed. And depending on the context of the scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament or translated in the Greek New Testament, the idea is God's loving kindness. This is what God is like. He's loving kindness, that he's merciful, that he's loyal in his love. This always speaks to the person who has said speaks to his nature. Michael Card, some of you will remember Michael Card. He was a musician and an author. I would say he's also a theologian, but that's not a title he ever um, grasped for himself. He defines Hesed as when someone who owes me absolutely nothing chooses to give me absolutely everything. When someone who owes me absolutely nothing chooses to give me absolutely everything. So as we would consider Israel below, watching their leader disappear up on the summit, wondering in their hearts and minds, what will happen to us now? Now that we have sinned, now that we have seen recompense, what will happen to us now? And again, their leader, Moses, hears God say that I am abundant in goodness and truth. God is merciful and he is just. This is how John's gospel, as in, in its opening chapter, describes Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 14. 
Of the word, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father. Listen to these last words, full of grace and truth. David amplifies this idea of God's goodness in Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm chapter 103, beginning in verse 10. He says of God that he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear or revere or reverence him. And then this verse would be very familiar to you. He goes on to say, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And I say, amen. Amen. Some of you say, well, you know, Danny, I read this Exodus stuff and uh, uh, some people died. Yes, that's true. 3,000 men who persisted in their idolatry after Moses returned. Because we know that God is certainly good. How many times have our, has our pastor over the course of the years stood in this pulpit and said, God is good? Right? All the time. I don't know. I don't know if I think about what a great favor he did us to incorporate this into our mindset, to know that God is always good, especially when we do not feel we deserve his goodness. I want you to listen to an excerpt of an article written by Stephen Whitmer entitled, Kindness Changes Everything. This is the portion of the article. In her memoir about the journey from being a committed lesbian to a committed Christian, Rosaria Butterfield says that as a non-Christian, her impression of evangelical Christians was that they were poor thinkers, judgmental, scornful, and afraid of diversity. After publishing a critique of an evangelical Christian group in her local newspaper, she, re she received an enormous volume of polarizing responses. Placing an empty box on each corner of her desk, she sorted out hate mail into one and fan mail into the other. Then she received a two-page response from a local pastor. Listen to what she says about this letter. She says it was a kind and inquiring letter. It had a warmth and a civility to it. In addition to its probing questions, she couldn't figure out which box to put the letter into, so it sat on her desk for seven days. She goes on to say, it was the kindest letter of opposition that I have ever received. It demonstrated that the writer wasn't against her. The individual that wrote this letter, in his words, demonstrated that he wasn't against her. Eventually, she contacted the pastor and became friends with him and his wife. She goes on to say, they talked to me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. Their friendship was an important part of her journey to faith. And end of quote. For, I believe that for a world immersed in pain, God's has said, is the church's superpower. God's goodness and kindness and justice 
is the way. This is the way. Augustine would say, He that is kind is free, though he is a slave. He that is evil is a slave, though he be a king. Paul captures the balance between God's goodness and truth in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, where he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him. That speaks of our sanctification, our spiritual maturity, who is the head in Christ. Again, speaking the truth, but doing so in love. Why not speak truth minus God's kindness? Let me read to you from Romans chapter 2, verse 4. This is the New Living Translation, where Paul says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended? God's kindness, kindness is intended to turn you from your sin. So in our time together tonight, I just want to briefly uh, glean from Jesus' interaction with a woman. To appreciate her story, it is important to know that Jews hated Samaritans. They looked down upon them. They would have nothing to do with them. They were certainly outcasts in their minds. Samaritans, you see, were a mixture of Jew and Gentile. Think ethnic hybrids. Their religion was a little wonky as well. Think a mixture of paganism and Jewish beliefs. But I want you to see that Jesus is both kind and truthful to our Samaritan friend. I want you to see that he meets her where she's at, and in the interactions, he both loves her through his kindness, but he loves her through imparting truth to her. Not all of God's great work is seen in creation. I believe that it is. I don't know if you had an opportunity to be outside today, but as Wanda and I were making our way around our community, I kept commenting on how beautiful everything was. At least, at least I could see the, the flowers were blooming and the sky was blue and, and these clouds were, were, were almost luminous. And so, uh, but not all of God's great work is seen in creation. No, I believe that God's greatest work is seen in the transformation of broken lives because he is, he is abundant in goodness and truth. When I was a youth pastor, one of the young women in our, in our group, I, I, I cared a lot for her. She was a, a package deal. There were these three sisters that always came to youth group. They always went on the trips with us. They were always together. And she came to me one day and she says, you know, Danny, I'm expecting. She's about 16 years old. And so we talked a little bit. She had already informed her parents. As a matter of fact, her dad had made an appointment with me. I knew exactly what he was going to talk about. I met with the young man. He was in a leadership position in my youth group, yes. I asked him to take a break, but I asked both of them to remain engaged in church. So dad comes in and he says, I understand that you want both, you know, both of these young people, I won't use names, but both of them to, re, to be a part of, the, remain to be in the youth group. I said, I do. She goes, well, he goes, well, what about this guy? I go, well, he's taking a break for leadership. I want them to receive healing. I want them to be a part of our community. He says, well, I, I don't see it. He goes, I don't think you should allow them to be here. Now, this is the dad of the young lady. And I said, well, you know what? 
I go, this youth group's more like a family than anything else. And I think the support that they receive, at least as a pastor, I go, they're not going anywhere. He says, well, okay. He goes, I'll, get, I'll concede to that. But he goes, I want you to make them stand on the platform in front of the youth group and tell them what they've done. And I said, no, I won't do that. He says, well, how are they going to learn their lesson? And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, how do you think she felt when she realized that she was pregnant and couldn't tell anybody? You tell me, how do you think she felt? How do you think she felt when her body began to change and she wore baggier and baggier clothes to hide what she knew would eventually bring shame to her and her family? Tell me, how do you think she feels? I go, how do you think she felt when she had to tell you? How do you think she felt when she had to tell her mom? How do you think she felt when she came down here into my office and told her youth pastor what had happened? I go, how do you think she felt? Don't you think that it's time for us to welcome her with arms of love rather than to punish her? Don't you think she's been through enough? My friends, this is the way. We are to engage, whether it's political, social, or ethnic, we are to engage the world around us with kindness and goodness and love. But on the other hand, we are to speak the truth, as Paul's own words say, with love. And sometimes that means we're going to speak the truth, not with veins bulging out of the side. We're going to speak the truth with tears rolling down our cheeks. But why, Danny? Because we recognize how much we've been forgiven. And, and sometimes, in all honesty, in these discussions, and yes, I'm going to get into John chapter 4 here right now, sometimes it's easier for me to say, look at their sin, not recognizing that my spiritual pride is just as offensive to God as their sin is to me. John chapter 4, God's grace, verse 7 through 10. And I want you to notice how many times John identifies this woman as being from Samaria. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And then he explains to us in, in verse 8, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Verse 9, the, wo- the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Again, explanation from John for the readers, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have given, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Before I get into this, and I'm not going to be too long, you and I have Samaritans in our lives. I'm not, we're not going to identify them, but you and I have those people that we see And again, it's something that we're working on, right? But we have those people that we see that we keep at arm's length. I'm not going to get too personal right now. I'm going to get back into the story. I'm going to mind my own business. But listen, you and I have Samaritans. How many times does John say, a woman of Samaria? She lived in a nearby town of Sychar. Retrieving water from the community well alone was telling The chore was an opportunity to socialize with others. This is where the women got together. This is where they exchanged stories. This is where they exchanged recipes and how-tos. And yet, she is alone. 
Some think that her reputation caused her to come when she knew that no one else would be there. When she knew that even though she was alone, listen, she thought she would be safe. I want you to see self-imposed isolation rooted in shame. Jesus initiates conversation with her. Verse 7, he says, give me a drink. Remember, they're alone. Remember that men don't speak to women, Jewish men in particular. Remember that no Jew would speak to a Samaritan. But he's a, he's a gentleman because in the original language it suggests that he says, please give me a drink of water. It's not a demand or command, it's a request. The scene reminds us that we must be willing to venture outside of our comfort zones to show grace to others. Jesus is at this well by design. Jews would not go through Samaria for fear of becoming rendered, rendered unclean. They would go over to the Jordan Valley. They would go north and then into the Galilee. He wants to be here with her. And you and I must, we must, Think of ways to get outside of our... And you're looking at a man that's got the biggest... A comfort zone as big as the state of Texas. But we have to think of ways to get outside of our comfort zone where we know everybody's name in order to show God's grace to Samaritan women or men. One thing I want you to think about. Jesus loved this woman more than he loved his reputation. His ask broke cultural norms. I also want you to know that love doesn't care what others think about you. As a matter of fact, Jesus is, and and these are his words, Jesus' enemies in Luke chapter 7, verse 34 would say, look at him, look at him. They would point their fingers. The religious leaders would say, look at him, look at him. This is condemnation. He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But the fact of the matter is, is that the church will move forward when we're kind to those who least expect it. But our motive must be love. Our motive must be God's goodness and God's truth. Why, Danny? Because if we don't love the Samaritan, then they simply are going to feel like a project. They're simply going to feel as though our extension of love is insincere. Surprised surprised by his request, she puts it out there. Verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me a woman for a drink, a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? Bob Goff, I don't know if you're familiar with his writings, but he says, if I'm only willing to love the people who are nice to me, the ones who see things the way I do and avoid all the rest, It's like reading every other page of the Bible and thinking that I know what it says. Verse 10, kindness leads her, leads to the revealing of her great need. Jesus' response again is life-giving when he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, listen, living water. Jesus is saying in so many ways, I recognize that you're out here by yourself. I recognize that you've come to the well to draw water. I recognize that this is something that you do at least once a day, maybe twice a day, depending upon need. 
He said, but I want to give you something else. In the same way that she drew water from a deep well, Jesus draws her to himself. And if I could think of one of the main reasons that the church remains in this world is that we are in the world to draw people to Christ. Even more than a church or a home group, we have relationships with people in order to draw them to Jesus. Not necessarily to clean up their lives, but to allow Jesus to come into their lives and transform their hearts. Jesus draws her to himself to forgive her of her sin, to give her eternal life through the indwelling of the Spirit. She had been marginalized by others. She was loved by Jesus. Jesus uses an analogy of living water that is from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, where the prophet says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who turn away from you will be disgraced. They will be buried in the dust of the earth, for they have abandoned the Lord. Listen to how, they, how he, the prophet describes the Lord. The fount or the source of living water. There's a thought here. Please know that in the same way that in John chapter 3, Jesus engaged with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. In his case, Jesus describes a new birth in relation to the wind and to the Holy Spirit. He too met with analogy in the very same way, in the very same way, in the very same tone that he engages with Nicodemus, he is now engaging with this woman. This speaks to how much he loved her and cared for her. Some have said that Christ's manner is like a velvet hammer, tender with love, yet firm with truth. Warren, Warren Wearsby, the commentator, says, truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Let's get into the second part, God's truth, in John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. We'll be done. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one or the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus initiates grace and goodness, mercy and love, but then he also interjects truth. Wisdom tells us that some conversations are best held in private. I would add to that that many conversations should also be confidential. That the interaction that we have with some people, we should so respect them that we want to protect that conversation or the truth that's exchanged. I believe that God honors that. Sometimes when I think about truth, I have this in the summer months, it's coming up. I have this appointment with my doctor where he'll have me come in, they'll do some blood work. You know, it's, it's like a tune-up. Well, maybe it's a little more than a tune-up because they put you up on the rack and they change the oil and everything. But, you know, as I come in, one of the first things the nurse does, say, hi, Mr. Ramos, how you doing? I'm doing good. I have the same dumb jokes. She goes, is there anything we can help you with today? Yeah, I'd like to get some hair. And she could not help me with that. And then she brings me to a scale. She looks at it. I look at it. She knows what, I know what she wants me to do. She knows what she wants me to do. I just don't want to do it. And she goes, will you please stand on the scale? I go, is that part of the deal? She goes, yep, you're paying for it. So first thing I do is I slip off my shoes. I'll tell you something about scales and mirrors. They tell the truth. 
When I'm leaving there, I'm usually mumbling to myself like that thing needs to be uh, calibrated, like, you know, like what's going on here? And, 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 and one doctor had the nerve to tell me, you know, Mr. Ramos, you back off on the tortillas, you do a little bit better at this scale thing. That's something I certainly didn't want to hear. I did hear it with tears in my eyes. Talking about doctors, because I always have these aches and pains, right? The doctor reminds me, when I visit the doctor anyways, you know, sometimes people will ask you, what's your, what's your favorite childhood memory? And I said, my, ch- my favorite childhood memory is trying to remember what it felt like when my back didn't hurt. On the screen, you'll see this quote. Grace doesn't overlook truth. It meets guilt with mercy. Jesus tells her to do what she cannot do. He knows she can't do this, but he says, go call your husband. Hear her confession in verse 17 when she says, I have no husband. It's something that she speaks out loud. It's something that she says to Jesus. This leads to a reveal when in verse 18 he says, you have had five husbands. This was hard for her to hear. This is something where she's beginning to think, this man knows who I am. This man knows who I am. You've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. This man knows who you are. We're not talking to the woman at the well anymore. I'm talking to you. This man knows who you are, and he's pursuing you because he loves you. This man knows every thought, every motive, He knows you on your best days. He knows you on your worst days. And he calls you by name, and he pursues you. And he points to the many things that you and I do in an attempt to satisfy the thirst of our soul. And he says, I will give you water that you will never thirst again. We know that her situation was unlawful. We know that her situation was immoral. God in the flesh says, I know, I understand, but I will not crush you. I am here to rescue you. Jesus affirms her when he says, what you have said, it's true. One more thing before we conclude. If you hang out with Samaritans, I want you to memorize this verse. It's from John 3.17. You know John 3.16. You see it in football games all the time, some guy running up and down the end zone. But I want you to remember this verse. And this may be something that you memorize for somebody else, but tonight I want you to memorize it for yourself. Where Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Through him. My friend, he didn't come to condemn you. He came to rescue you. Verse 25 and 26 The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. She shifts gears. He who is called to Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The Samaritans believed that. Messiah would be not unlike Moses, 
however more of a teacher and a prophet kind of leader. The Jews themselves had hoped for a deliverer and a king. That explains her angle on Messiah when she says that Messiah will tell us all things. Truth incarnate speaks, I who speak to you am he. Jesus' words of truth through acts of grace, even kindness, revealed to this woman who God has. You can close your Bibles. We'll prepare to take communion. I want to close, before I pray, I want to close with a story because this happened to somebody who was close to me. Another youth pastor from another era, another time, received an email late at night. It was a former student who had been away at university. He said, he said in the email, I, I would like to meet with you tomorrow at church if it's okay. He said, I know you're busy, but there's something I need to talk to you about. And so the youth pastor made an appointment during the busyness of his morning. He found a block of time where he could meet with him. The young man came in and sat down on the couch. And he began to describe to the youth pastor, that, you know, he goes, he goes, from my earliest memories, I've had this, this attraction to to." people of the same sex. And he says, I'm, I've always prayed and, and, and resisted. I've never acted upon it. And, and now that I'm at university, I feel like I need to tell somebody. And I knew I would be home this weekend. And so I'm here to talk to you. And so in this tender friendship that had been over the years and a connection, the two of them talked and prayed through the situation. One of the things the youth pastor wanted this young man to know, he goes, you know, you struggle with this, but I struggle with that. He says, and in the same way that we are not to yield to the desire, that we're not to yield to something that we know is inconsistent with God's word, he wanted to relate to the young man that you can depend on the power of the Holy Spirit and the strength of the Holy Spirit and the community of the church. We will draw you in. We will walk with you but you're not to yield to your desire. As the young man got up, they embraced. As he headed for the door, he turned around to, the youth, to the, his former youth pastor and he said, I just want to thank you for making time for me this morning. The youth pastor asked him, why did you choose to tell me? He said, well, one, I knew that you were going to encourage me to tell, inform my parents. And you're telling me to inform my parents because I will need the support and their love. And as the young man turned around, he goes, and because I knew if I told you, even though you wouldn't, even though you wouldn't agree with everything I say, I knew you would be kind. My friends, this is the way. We are to be agents of God's goodness and God's truth. We are to be merciful and kind. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.